Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to my Grand Slam Journey podcast, where I, together with my guests, discuss various topics related to finding purpose, maximizing our potential, competitive sports, life after sports, and transitioning from one chapter of our lives to the next. If you want to learn more about my podcast, please browse my website and blog at grandslamjourney.com which is a collection of my passion projects. Today's episode is with Don Tursell. Don is currently the head of Alliance Partnerships and Business Development and Google Cloud. Don and I met in 2019 when I still worked at Ericsson. Don is a great listener, a true partner, and a genuine human. To tell you a brief story of how Don and I have met, since the beginning we started discussing our sports and athletics, and I have shared with Don one of my stories when I was sitting in a library studying for my finals and drinking Red Bull, and since then, how I can't stand any energy drinks or Red Bull specifically. In another occasion, when we had a different meeting and we're sitting at the Google cafeteria, Don brought over a can of a Red Bull and set it right in front of me. I thought that was hilarious and just went straight to laughing. And I actually think it's an example of Don paying attention and listening to even some of the small unimportant things about my life that I have shared with him. And that had carried over to not just our business, but uh, as a creation of our friendship and the foundation of friendship. This podcast is more of a discussion than just me interviewing Don. During this podcast, we both shared some of our life experiences from our sports journeys. We talk about the difference between tennis and basketball, as well as the similarities that our sports taught us and what it means to be a collegiate athlete. Don shares his basketball journey and how it evolved from being a competitive collegiate basketball player to using his sports as something that allowed him to create new friendships and support groups at work. Last but not least, Don was also a basketball coach, and we discuss his coaching principles and the mindset he has learned by playing and coaching basketball and how he is applying it in his everyday life and at the workplace. We discuss different parenting styles and the importance of giving kids the freedom to choose their sport and passion, the difference between supporting them to find what they enjoy doing versus pushing them to do something. I especially enjoyed my discussion with Don on competitiveness, mindfulness, celebrating the small wins along the way, creating high-performance teams, and learning to appreciate our differences to create more enjoyable work and life experiences. I want to share with you a couple of my favorite quotes from this podcast. First, on what sport taught us. Set audacious goals with a time frame for completing them, but that you actually believe you can complete, and create space to form the plan to get to that end destination. On teamwork, how we learn and appreciate our differences will make us a better humanity and have more enjoyable experiences. You can find more quotes in the episode description notes. And now, enjoy the listen. Hello, Don. Hi, Clara. How are you? 
I am good. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for making time and meeting with me today. We have met in what I call now my previous life. And as a former athlete, I feel we somehow always click. There's something between athletes that I feel when we find another former athlete, even if it's a different sport, there's some sort of ways of working that we get and understand. So I'm super happy to interview you here and have a fun conversation. I give everyone an opportunity to introduce themselves. I had my own introduction, but I wanted to invite you. Any top things you would want people who listen to this to know about you to start with? Thanks, Clara. And it's great to join you. You know, we've known each other. I checked back when our first meeting was. It was just prior to COVID when we met and we did discuss sports, you know, as the start of that whole sort of work and personal relationship developed. I'm a, you know, a high tech guy at heart, but I have applied my sports background to my whole career. I've seen it evolve over time. You know, I've been in the Bay Area now my whole life and the high tech world has been my work career for most of that. But uh, sports has always been my, my life passion, both in my spare time, on my online time. I like to learn about how other people's experience and how they evolved into what they did, both as a young person as they grow older, because I think transitioning from the comp competitive world of sports to more of trying to stay fit mm -hmm. and having fun at it is a journey that we, sh we probably all share. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I you, although I was a basketball player starting at a very young age, I'm a very tall person. I'm, you know, six foot eight. I love all sports. Like I'm a golfer, but even as a kid, I played lots of different sports. So, and I enjoy tennis. I have played tennis with my kids and my wife. Not very good. I didn't know that actually. Yeah. <laughs> but tennis is a great sport. We have a couple courts in our neighborhood here that are publicly open and, and just mostly for fun and fitness, we go out and hit a ball a few times. So this is exciting to chat. I really enjoy our conversations. Yeah, thank you, Don. And I have a couple pages of notes prepared here for you. So we'll dive in as we go and uh, I'm sure it will be fun discussion. Actually, you touched base on this in your intro and I typically want to start with just understanding your upbringing and how you grew up and really what led you to basketball, any coaches or key people who influenced you. How was your upbringing in East Bay, uh, Livermore, actually, you mentioned? Yeah, I grew up in a typical, at the time, it was pretty small and disconnected from the rest of the Bay Area, Livermore, about, you know, 40, 50,000 people. Livermore is a unique place in that the Livermore Lawrence Laboratories is there. And that's where my family moved to Livermore. And my dad was a physicist. It drew a strong cultural difference. There's lots of people from around the world. So that was one thing I got exposed to. But then naturally, you know, the, the traditional sports were pretty common. Football, basketball, and baseball. And Livermore was also a big soccer town, one of the very first communities to embrace soccer in California. So even starting at age six, I played soccer. Um, but I had a lot of friends 
We had school baskets that were readily available to us. You know, fourth or fifth grade is kind of when we all got exposed and grabbed a ball. And I've been lucky to have enough group around me where getting together to shoot or going to a park somewhere to to play games was just a natural part of my childhood, my teenagehood, and even through college. I did have a a good background. Um, We had some really good local coaches. One of my best friends to this day still lives in the Valley, and his dad was our co-basketball coach in high school, Pat Francisco and Pat Francisco Sr. And they were the ones that really, um, I met Pat when I was in seventh grade. And, uh, you know, a coaching family, he was also a good mentor to me because Pat was a couple years older and helped me focus on what selecting a sport and really being good at it would entail. Pat was really serious about it from a young age. And that instilled in me that there are aspects of fitness, aspects of training and practice. I was a happy-go-lucky kid that kind of came into this. And my parents were great. They were very open to me learning new experiences and trying everything. Mm-hmm. They, they were not focused on how I think today's parent culture is a lot in, in the Bay Area and around the world. Pushing their kids or trying to push kids uh, in a one direction or the other. So Coach Francisco taught me the basics. And uh, I was lucky enough to grow up with a group of guys that were actually very athletic and very good. So we had good teams growing up. So I I enjoyed some success and that just helped me build a foundation of balancing academics and sports. Cause that's one thing my parents instilled in my sister and I, that sports was good, but academics was important at the same time. And so you know, like we talked about you know, and have talked about in the past, that balance is an important one for all of us in life to think about in mm-hmm. terms of handle multiple priorities. And that's even flowed into my work life about, um, you know, balancing things that are important, not f- focusing on just one exclusively, just trying to make sure there's a good balance. Yeah, I love that. And thank you for all you highlighted. I would say just my childhood was very similar with playing a lot of different sports, given I come from a very small city back then. So we didn't really know even what professional sports was. And Mm -hmm. very rare as well, what I see now, many people try to focus the kids on special sport early. Yeah. Yeah. As I have been interviewing and, and having fun conversations with people, though, it really seems like surprisingly actually majority of the people i have talked to have played variety of sports early on that allowed us to get very good physical strength and agility because they all require different skill set yeah and then somehow it seems like it typically just grew this is the sport Mm -hmm. that grabbed me and not many of us knew how to explain what or why it just seems to grow into that direction itself was that similar for you or you did mention you had pad mentor coach who influenced you anything else that as you reminisce stands out to you this was the deciding moment and focused on one sport 
and basketball is it? Yeah, I think that's um, a really good question. And one thing I did want to touch on is that most of my early experiences were all in team sports. Mm-hmm. I did not play a lot of individual sports, even into my 20s, you know, just casual hitting golf balls at a driving range, but I didn't really compete. Ah, I take that back. I was a swimmer for four or five years, Mm. but I wasn't a super competitive swimmer. My sister was a much better swimmer than I was, (laughs) but um, there's a swim club on our corner where I even swam. Um, But coming back to how did I end up being focused on basketball? You know, starting in about eighth grade, I think where the team group that we had, we had a really good core and we worked well together and it was a good group of guys. And so we got along real well. So there was a good overlap between that becoming like a core group of friends at the same time. So we spent a lot of time together and that drew me in even further. But I think by nature, I am also a fairly competitive person. And craving the competition was one thing that I think drove me to focus in on one because we wanted to compete. We wanted to represent our school. You know, that's something that I think some of us go through. And I had a couple of friends who were similarly dedicated and really all in. And then I had other friends that played on our team, but then they were doing multiple sports. Like one of my good friends was a football track star. And he did play basketball. He was just a supreme athlete. But he didn't take any one of them as seriously as I really sort of dove in. So it might be subconscious personality oriented or I don't know. But I will say that having really gone in deep for my freshman, sophomore, junior year of high school, My senior year, I kind of missed the other sports that I had played earlier on because I put so much in. Mm. I actually went out and tried out for the baseball team just to see (laughs) what it was like. Of course, I was like years behind the group and uh, it was just a a whim. But um, I think that also led me to, to keep an open mind after my collegiate experience of basketball for being more varied in the sports that I really like to play yeah that's interesting were you the tallest baseball player on the team down because oh, when gosh. i met you, you yeah. <laughs> you're so tall how tall are you you're six, oh my five, well, story on that when i was a when i was <laughs> growing up i was always i was uh six foot tall as a sixth grader wow and by the time i graduated high school i was six foot seven six foot eight Um, so yeah, I was the tallest in the school, tallest, um, near the tallest of the league that I played in, in high school. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, and then people always ask me, I got to get this in early because it's a really funny thing, Clara. When I finished high school and I was in college, my sister would be with me on occasion and she'd always, we'd be out in public and and people would always come up to me and they would say one of three things they'd, they'd say, how's the weather up there or how tall are you? Or they would say, did you play basketball? One of those three questions. Okay. So she literally, when I was, you know, in college, she got me a t-shirt with those three questions on it. 
Uh, and my answer was, it, it wasn't the questions, it was the answers. It was, I'm six foot nine. I do play basketball mm. and the weather's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So that's so funny. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, being someone who sticks out a little bit, I still get those questions to this day. And, and if you don't have a chuckle with it, you can't let it bother you. You know, I imagine you have had that as well, being a tall woman yes. and an athlete, right? So that's probably something that's come up in your life too. That is funny. They haven't asked me how's the weather out there. That one I didn't get. But the other two, actually, I've gotten quite often. <laughs> how tall are you? Yeah. And especially even now, if I wear heels. And people first look at me and they start looking at my feet and then, okay, she has heels. It's fine. But yeah. even with the heels, I, like with the other heels are sort of stood out. And something about people, they love guessing sports. Mm -hmm. True. So every time someone see me, and even now when they see me walk around, have you played sports? Like what sport yeah. have you played? And basketball and volleyball are the two yep. that I've been guessed the most, yeah. especially here in the U.S., But I've been guessed some funny sports, like some person guessed karate. I, huh. like, I don't know how karate <laughs> person looks like. Uh, the weirdest one to me is the gymnast. And oh, yeah. I think at some point I was very like probably 7% body fat at some point of my life. So I used to be very skinny. Yeah. But no one's ever seen a six foot tall gymnast. And I was like... <laughs> uh, that, that one was interesting yeah so sometimes i will answer with a funny one like that um you know do you play basketball and i'll say no i was i was a wrestler you know or something off the wall you know and then they get a little dumbfounded so yeah Those are fun. We made actually my partner makes fun. We would make fun. He was a personal Zumba dancer. Uh -huh. I don't know what Zumba personal <laughs> dancer looks like, but it's a funny discussion sometimes <laughs> with people if you can tease them in a fun yeah. way. <laughs> so that's the background of my basketball, you know, up through high school. But I know you and I, we took it even further. We grabbed a hold of our competitive nature and our innate drive and our success to a good degree. And we took a little further. I know we talked about how you selected and went to a special school for tennis. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about that. And then I'll tell you a little bit about my collegiate basketball selection and, and experience. I think there's parallels there too, you know, about in-depth coaching and immersion that I think were parallel from both an individual sport experience or a collegiate athletic experience. Yeah. And actually maybe just to back up to preface, I, I think in some ways in Czech Republic, there is not much, there's not many choices. Hmm. You okay. at some point either do sport competitively and your family and everyone is all in and mm -hmm. that's what is prioritized and then drives everyone's life yeah or you sort of do it on the side and you're not thing. planning yeah. to be professional or really top player yeah. so at around 13 years of age i've been traveling to this tennis academy 
every so often and I had a coach who was very strict and <laughs> not many people actually could handle her. I love that she was very straightforward, but she would yell at people if you were one minute late. It was just a disaster and you would run for the first 30 minutes so hard that you would not be another one minute late ever or at least for the next month unless it's like a disaster. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so we're traveling back and forth for a while and she started getting really upset. You know, you come here, I fix all of your things and then you come back to your little town and train with other coaches and they, in essence, she was very straightforward. Something like screw everything up and then I got to keep fixing oh. it. So she was <laughs> like, you either come here and just stay here in the tennis academy and keep playing with me or just don't come at all because I'm tired of fixing your <laughs> the other coaches things up that are not good. So my mom sort of, I think, made the decision for me. I was 13 years old at that point, and it was just clear if I wanted to get better, that is what I had to do. So at 13 years of age, I moved to one of the top three tennis academies in Czech Republic. And I, since I was 13, lived on my own and uh, focused on training four to seven hours a day, including the conditioning. I've always had good grades. So it's funny thing. On the things that are in the priority for me have gone very easy in life. I have to give credit to my grandparents because they set high standards and homework always had to be first. And I also think a lot of the tennis focus helped me. So I was very structured. And even when I was little, I knew how to study. So I knew when I get on the court, I got to focus and do things right. And the same mindset I have taken on, okay, now I have to study, I have to focus and get things done and get ace. So that really helped in justifying even in my ninth grade and elementary and eighth grade, which is not typical, but the teachers being open with letting me just go out and train and do individual studying plan. And then the same thing sort of then happened in high schools. I actually had few high schools, one that was more prestige, but then I ended up switching to another that was focused on business and it was easier to travel, get things done, schedule the exams on my own and really focus on the sport. I would say the school was secondary, not the grades. The grades were always important. But for me, the school turned being into secondary really early when I started being in the academy, 13 years of age. Yeah. And then I transitioned to college actually when I was around 20. I wanted to continue playing professionally, but given so few people make it, at the time my mom was promoting me to get into college, try it for a couple months, see how it is. If you don't like it, you come back. If you like it, you get your education and tennis at the same time. So um, I took the chance, went to school, and yeah. 16 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> so I think my mom is like, when are you coming back at this point? <laughs> well, I think that was a good advice to, uh, I'm not going to say hedge your bets, but um, to balance, balance, yes. balance again, right? So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I had a different experience in that me individually, in high school, I was really young for my grade. So I graduated high school when I was 16 because when I was early on, uh, my parents pushed me ahead of grade. I have to give them credit for uh, 
my thinking abilities and my height. <laughs> my my parents were also tall and very smart. But I still had that passion for playing. And so I took the route rather than going to, you know, I had the grades to go to a range of uh, four-year colleges, but I really wanted to play basketball in college. So there's a, a tier of colleges in California and around the country called junior colleges that have, you know, really good programs. And I was lucky enough to follow my friend Pat to the college where he went called Chabot College in Hayward. And the coach there, Coach Patello, has probably had the most impact on me from taking my sort of raw physical skills to creating more of a thinking athlete, more of a fitness he challenged me on my fitness because I was not that strong and I just hadn't matured, right? Tall people tend to mature a little further along in their, their journey. So, and that program was one of the top programs in the nation from a junior college perspective. So there's a couple of people that actually went into the NBA that came from the school that I played in in junior college. And so I got immersed into that. And I will say it was also a cultural experience because Livermore at the time was a very culture. There was Asian, Hispanic, some African-American, and lots of Caucasian people in the city. But our team was all Caucasian, and I didn't have exposure to playing with African-American guys until I got to Chabot. And so that immersed me into a whole nother world of culture, whole nother type of people. And I think that helped me develop an appreciation for differing backgrounds in the people that I worked with and how to work with people that don't have the same cultural background or advantages growing up. You know, a lot of the friends that I met in college came from poor households and were struggling, but um, we all managed to get through it. So that was my choice to get to the next level. And then we were very successful. By the time I finished up my time there, I was very competitive and I wouldn't say great, but I was a very good player who was offered several scholarships. And um, so selecting that scholarship was a journey that was an interesting one. And Carrying this much like you did on the academic side, kind of coming back to that side, I was a weird case in that I was a math major in college. <laughs> Not a lot of basketball players are math majors. <laughs> yeah. And so the level of um, academics that I carried was pretty high. So throughout my college athletic experience, the physical drain of a season, I would impact my grades. I would manage through, but then you could see I was kind of wave-like in my GPA over time, mm -hmm. where in season, I was exhausted a lot of the time. So it was tough to keep up, but I managed to keep up. That's my experience of then getting to a four-year college. I selected Cal Poly Pomona. It was a new coach, new team, my first time really being away from the Bay Area. Uh, it's down near East Los Angeles, uh, you know, out in the valley there. 
So we had not as a successful team, but I did transition to um, having another group of friends. That was an interesting experience and helped me grow up a lot in terms of um, dealing with adversity, Mm. dealing with a different group and not having the success that I had had previously in my other teams. So I learned a lot from that. Managed to keep up my grades enough where getting out the other side of college as a college athlete, I think that's something that you successfully did. And then I had a similar journey on how do you balance all that together, your exhaustion, the demands of the sport, and your studies. I will say, though, towards the end of my college career, there was a a little sense of me that. I wasn't going to go to the next level. And that was almost a recognition that if I wanted to continue this journey, there might have been a path to it. But then I kind of came to my senses about, hey, what am I going to do? (laughs) What am I going to do for a living next? Right. Mm -hmm. And so that was my transition into more casual competing, although I did compete pretty extensively all around the Bay Area and different leagues and teams and try to keep that competitive juice alive. But yeah, that was my experience of going through selecting a college. And the coaching that I had was instrumental in helping me create a foundation that I think has applied to business in terms of working with other people, no matter where they come from. And basketball is a sport where you have to have complementary pieces to be successful. You know, there's different positions. You know, there's people like myself that were not the people scoring all the points, but I would do the defense, the rebounding, Mm -hmm. the taking up space. Really, it's a role that what's called a center. I played center. And that is kind of a link pin of what I played on those teams. and then there were interlocking parts with people that would dribble. There was people that would shoot. You know, we all had to function as, as a unit. And I think that's helped in my way. And I think you've seen some of my emails at work. I always use team and (laughs) a similar thing of trying to bring people together. And so that athletic foundation that we both have, I think is allowed us to work may not, be explicitly competitive, but in terms of applying some of those principles, I think that's been a good foundation for both of us to leverage. Yes, I agree. And you said so much, Don. I would just like to, for a second, back up to your selection of math and computer science. Being an <laughs> athlete in, in college, I have to say, I don't actually know if I can name even one person that I know from the athletic setting. Because as athletes, you end up always hanging out with other athletes because you have the different events. And most of them study kinesiology. There are some science majors, but computer science and math and combining it with high intensity and competitive sport and basketball, where you, during the season, play a lot of games and you travel a lot. Yeah. So that adds up to the complexity. And I would say even having such a big team that is always team focused, coach probably wants to create still the team spirit and you want to hang out with the people on the team to 
build a stronger team. Yeah. Not saying that in tennis it wasn't there, but I think because tennis is a very dynamic, you're playing individually and you need to be as a team, but it was, I think, a little bit more free in regards to building the teamwork. Yeah. What I've seen the basketball players in our campus had way stronger focus on the team unity than, let's say, some of the tennis sports like tennis yep. had. Agreed. So yep. how did you make that differentiation? Or it seems like really the math and computer science had to have a strong pull for you as well. Was it any of family influence or you just had passion for it? You know, it was interesting. Um, my dad was a nuclear physicist. Oh. He worked at Livermore Lab and he, he was a teacher by nature too. So mm-hmm. I, I picked up a lot of that stuff fairly easily. And I'm not going to say it was easy, (laughs) but in terms of being able to grasp things and get through them, it came pretty naturally to me. But, you know, I'm a little older than you are, but when I grew up in high school, my dad and I started building PCs together. Mm. It was the, you know, 1981, the first IBM PC came out and that was my senior of high school. But we had already been playing around a little bit by then. So I was already interested in computers. And there was a lot of people in my high school where computer science was the direction they were headed because it was Mm -hmm. there was opportunity that was emerging on the job front. Mm -hmm. And being close to the origins of Silicon Valley, I think that was a fairly common major of a lot of my friends, not necessarily the people on my athletic teams, but a lot of my regular friends. I know what you're talking about because I I can remember some study halls where there was one guy on my team when I was in Southern California, OB, he was an architecture major. But we had had these study halls where the the team was supposed to get into this room and it was part of the library. And we go in there after practice, you know, like seven o'clock. We'd been at it for six hours that day. <laughs> and um, he and I would look at each other. We would be killing ourselves on the books and everything. And everyone else is kind of goofing around or they go out the back. And you're right. They were kinesiology, social behavior, getting ready to be PE teachers or what have you. So I think it was unique that I tried to tackle that and play athletics, it's probably not that common. Yes, (laughs) at least from my observation, I I concur with that statement. Yeah, even I studied business and I would argue that it was one of the reasons it seemed easy for me, it came natural, even like international business and just something that made sense to me, even given that was the only other thing I knew anything about because my mom and my dad had business early on. And um, mm-hmm. I would argue that just so much easier. Than <laughs> I can't imagine studying yeah. computer science and trying to play tennis together. The one thing that stands out to me about the college athletics, and maybe not many people realize, is the traveling, the effort, and the amount of time you spend practicing on the court. Yeah. And also all of the other aspects that go around the sport, whether it's PT, the nutrition, there's a lot of other things that combine with it to just have good performance on the court. So it becomes almost a job on its own. It's really became a job for me in college. And you become very clearly being stated you're in athletics, you're representing the school, you need to 
behave a specific way. You have to have a specific persona. So I think I've really learned in the U.S. about that more. How was that for you? How did you navigate all of the basketball? Or do you remember what was your regular schedule look like to just give people who listen <laughs> an idea of your day? Yeah, it was um, going back to one thing you mentioned about Um, representing your school. I think the strong coaches that I had did have instill that in the team. They put a framework together. There was dress codes. There was a no facial hair code in one of my coaches. That to some degree instilled some pride in what the team was representing. So you knew you you were representing something. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't trying to create robots but he was trying to make sure you know there's the old adage if you look good and you play good that sort of thing i think he was trying to represent that when our teams we would walk in an opposing gym mm-hmm. but my schedule let's focus probably in my last year of college we had an early morning meeting and then i would go to the dining commons I would check in and I would sweep tables in the dining commons because that's the job you got as an athlete <laughs> and you ate as much food as you could as you went through. <laughs> <laughs> then you punched out and then you went to class. Um, and then we would go to practice from three o'clock to six o'clock. And then I was lucky enough that, that I could go then back to the dining commons to get more food And then I would get to the study hall by seven and by seven to 10 ish. And I lived off campus at that time and it was a 20 minute drive. So then I would get in the car and, and by the time I was in the car, I remember some of those times, even though it was not a busy road, you know, I would nod out at the wheel sometimes, you know, just trying to get home. And then if I had a test or something, I had to work on it again when I got home. Mm. And so that was, uh, and then you'd get up the next day and do it all over again. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so. It is actually quite similar to what I remember. And especially before exams and the finals, right? I always remember that yeah. I had at least one test where I had to pull an all-nighter. Because oh, yeah. I didn't have a chance to plan studying yeah. for So that was the yep. one that was eight or nine a.m. You yep. just got all the way through. You dope yourself on Red Bull and gummy bears <laughs> and coffee. So just right combination of sugar and coffee yep. to get you going through the night. <laughs> you take an exam and you're done yep. and dead for the rest of the day. <laughs> it was usually yeah. one of the last ones. Yeah, I didn't even touch on the days when we'd have games or we have to travel to another state to play games, either in a bus or a plane. Right. You know, and that's a 32 time, <laughs> actually half of that you're traveling because you're half your games at home. Those were tough times too, because if your game is on a Thursday in another state, mm-hmm. you're leaving on a, a Wednesday afternoon and you usually would not come home after Thursday. You would actually know you would, depending on how far away it was, you would either go the day of the game if it was drivable And I've had some miserable four-hour drives before a game. That was like the borderline. If it was four hours, you wouldn't go ahead. <laughs> But the ones that were six or longer in another state, you, mm-hmm. would, you would fly, spend the night, 
and then you couldn't, you wouldn't make class the next day. So you try to scramble to keep up, you know, sort of ad hoc study. And then you'd go do the game. And then depending on the arrangements, you would either go get in the plane and come back or you would spend another night. And then Friday would roll around. And if you could get the classes, that was a good thing. But you'd missed two days the week doing this. And there wasn't online classes Mm -hmm. back then. It was all (laughs) it was all in person. So you try to make connections in the class. I don't know if you had these experiences, but some teachers were sympathetic and then other teachers were like, talk to the hand. You're a student. I don't care. I don't care that you're an athlete. Mm -hmm. And you really had to feel that out because there were some, like there were boosters and and some of the teachers just loved the, the teams that I was on. And those were the ones where they would want, really want to help. They understood your plight. Right. And they would do extra for you. But there are others where you knew you were in for a battle, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> the emotional intelligence definitely comes handy with building those relationships and figure out yeah. how to behave. And I think actually I was pretty good at that early on to figure it out, building the rapport and the relationship with the teacher. And mm-hmm. that was very much yep. to me a contributor, I would say, in grades. I never considered myself to be the smartest. I just knew how to work with the professors, how to figure the schedule out, work around. And Mm -hmm. in some ways, I knew how to study to what they're going to question about. So I knew how to study for the exam, which was partly why I was so upset at school at the end of the year, because I always had A's. But I was (laughs) like, I'm not like the tests are, it's not for the smartest people. I just knew how to go through the system effectively because I learned how to navigate it well. But I do agree, like figuring out which professors you can do what and then building relationships with other kids that aren't athletes and go to the class and borrowing notes from them and asking them to give you notes or whatever they went over in the class was definitely helpful and important to succeed and get good grades. Yeah, yeah. And I I think there's Uh, a lot of skills associated with that. So I I wanted to ask you a question also, because I did take some classes not in the season. So my experience of being a student in the off season was different from being a student. Although there was training we would do, it was, but there were rules in terms of how much influence Mm -hmm. the coaches could have on that so you were pretty much on your own for a third of the year and then in summers when you're away from school I wanted to ask you if you had a different experience when you did not have an athletic focus on your schoolwork versus when you you did because I did see um, an ability to perform better in the classroom Mm -hmm. and a And I think some of it was the ability to absorb material in your brain because the level of you're tired all the time. I had more brain ergs Mm. to apply to the material. And I remember some of the classes that I took, I think I learned those, you know, how in some classes you're just taking them to try to get through them and get the test done. (laughs) That was kind of how a lot of the, most of my classes were, mm. were in season, but, but out of season, I think I was able to, to grasp more and appreciate more and, and give more. Yeah. And it is interesting. I don't know if I have the same observation, but 
I had weird summers. I think I took summer classes only two or three times. And those were typically, actually, I took them from home. So there were a few online classes that I took. And in the summer, I tried to go see the family. So I would do them from the Czech Republic. So I wonder if that's also different because it was more online and I still had to study on my own. And then the last time I took them was when I was kind of shortening my MBA and I just didn't want to get next semester. So I just kind of went through I did my MBA within one and a half years instead of two years because I just kind of packed a bunch of classes together to finish it in December. And also when I did that, I either tried to play. like In the earlier years when I took summer courses, I actually tried to play tour for a while during the summer. So I still trained really hard and I tried to travel and play tournaments, which is actually complicated and very tiring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in the later stage, I already, when I was doing my MBA, I had a job already at that point. So to me, it seemed almost same hectic because I probably never given myself enough space in between. I always felt something else with it. <laughs> but I, I do see how that would make sense for you and would be different, especially with also a major that is of that intensity and requires... Yeah high degree of focus. You mentioned that period and I had a, my last year of college, I was not playing college sports. I was out of sports, but I was still in college. And similarly, I work full time while trying to finish my double major. Mm. And um, I don't think I could have been able to do that if I hadn't played sports in college, because that even necessitated a lot more time management focus. Yeah. Carrying a full academic load and working. That was another challenge that was similar to an athletic drain, mm. but it was just time. You know, you just didn't have enough time in the day. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, Actually for me, that was the worst six months, like the end of the MBA. Yeah. Because first I've actually stretched. Yeah. Um, I have a complicated coach career, so we shouldn't go into this, but for multiple reasons, NCAA retroded me for a year. I did too. I, I did too, by the way. Yep. <laughs> Similar experience. Wow. That was my first year when I was 17. I redshirted that year. Wow. So, yeah. So I took some of my MBA classes when I still was on the tennis scholarship and competed. But then when I finished tennis and I knew it was going away, I was injured. Similar to you, what you mentioned, the reality hit. This is not going to continue. Yeah. This tennis and sport journey is at the end, and my body is just so tired from everything, anyways. It was really hard still for me to accept. Like, I understood it, I realized it, but I went through all five stages of grief. I would say it's one of the worst things in life that I had to overcome. And right after that, the good and bad thing was I jumped into, all right, I'm going to put all of my energy now to my next career, finishing degree and getting a real job because I wasted so much time, not kind of wasted, but it was <laughs> in that point, wasted so much time focusing on just sport. I need to refocus on kind of the new real life. And so I had a job. I went to work from probably eight or nine to five or four in some days. Then from there, I would go to athletic department from about 
4 to 6 or 7 p.m. Then I had and night ABM classes from about 7 to 11. And then I would get home. By the time you eat something, it's like midnight or 1 a.m. And then you start that over. So that was about, I think, from May to December. And so <laughs> I'm going to yeah. finish everything in December because I was just so tired and worn out. And it was that six, seven, eight months of doing that. And also, I think the transition from going from having so much activity Mm-hmm. And running and being active four to six hours a day to then now sitting majority of the times of the day. I think that was the hardest thing for me to just adjust from the activity level to now being sedentary. It was a really hard transition. How was the transition for you? I know you touched base on it a little bit, the recognition or realization that basketball is going to be out and as an athlete you know it will come at some point yeah yeah i don't know if we think about it too much while you're in it because you're really just focusing on getting everything right and the schedule but once it is done i feel like there is some sort of like empty space because it's something you've given so much effort and time including your family and friends and coaches who supported you and now you got to sort of figure out, all right, it's it's <laughs> over. What do I do now? <laughs> yeah, I absolutely had a similar experience. Mine was, my goal was never to be professional. I, I, I realized that early on. Mine was just to play at a competitive high, as high a level as my capabilities could take me. That was my driver. Mm. But towards the end of that, it became more difficult for me. You know, my last year was, I got kind of burned out. Mm-hmm. But then it took me probably six months to really realize how much I missed it. Missed the being in those kinds of groups, missed meeting people on a court. While I was working and going to school, that was immersive, but I, I know that that I, I started to miss it. And that's when I really got back into it. And got back into it. A lot of people do. They they join leagues. You know, they reconnect with the people that I'd played all those years with, and so join a fairly good group of competitive teams and played all over the Bay Area in a couple of really competitive leagues, and so that sort of fueled that competitive desire to keep going. Mm and have that competition from a sporting perspective. And so I carried that on for 20 years after finishing college. You know, I played in very competitive men's basketball leagues, um, started teams at the companies that I went to, tried to recruit people, tried to help others learn the sport that didn't have any exposure to it. I was lucky enough to work for companies that had access to gyms which was great. And then that became a way of building, I think, a network in some of the companies that I have worked at. Oracle, I met a group of friends at the Oracle gym. That was one of the first jobs that I had. And they became my next group of basketball friends. And um, we had a team together for 10 years before everybody started to create families and go their separate ways. Mm. It became the next social hub for me. Um, 
but uh, that six months for me was tough too, in terms of a transition. Um, realizing that I was at the end of one journey and then had to figure out what's the foundation for the next path. Um, and then the fitness thing for me was, was hard. I didn't do a lot in that six months, <laughs> but then I realized that I missed that part of it too. Just, uh, I missed being in shape and missed putting in the work to stay in shape. So I had to go back to that. <laughs> yeah. I would say that's one of the positive things about sports and being an athlete. I actually see a lot of positive, even now as I age. Someone asked me, oh, you, how do you work out every day? I was like, that's the one positive addiction I have in true. my life that's true. that I am keeping. Because I think if you do something in such a high intensity level, since you're so little, it almost gets engraved. So I used to be very grumpy when I wouldn't work out for at least three to four days. Like my mom, when I would go home for summer and I wasn't paying as much attention on working out, she was like, oh, you're mean. Just go out for a run. I can't stand you. 30, 45 minutes later, I was just so much <laughs> nicer. I think it's not as much now. My mom says, yeah. you've gotten a bit better. Like you can manage when I go on vacation to check and <laughs> see my family. I try to create my schedule for them because it's that one week that I see them so I can sacrifice my workout and some degree but my mom she was like complimenting me you're a little calmer you're not as grumpy after <laughs> three four or five days of not working out <laughs> I don't know how is that for you Don but it seems like very similar I would say similar up until you know I, I wore out some parts of my body playing basketball over the years. Mm. So I actually up, up through my college and, and, you know, 10 years after I was incredibly lucky on not having injuries other than a couple of fluke things. You know, I never had surgery as a result of playing, but then as I started to get into my forties, I started to wear things out and I had a couple of injuries um, one was related to my eye playing in a league game mm. and then my back and my feet. So I, over time had to really ramp back right? because I couldn't play anymore, you know, and I pushed it so many times where I wanted to go play and I would push it and then I would come out the other side and I would be out for a couple days yeah. in bed because I, I had overdone it <laughs> So I've transitioned to a lot more different ways to stay fit. And even now that's changed after the pandemic to even less impact stuff, mm -hmm. you know, stationary bike and walking. Yes. Before, believe it or not, for a while, I was really into boot camp and running, even being a big person. I really liked that. But then that was a phase that I went through. That was probably a five, eight year phase but I couldn't take that pounding either. So I think um, as we age, you know, figuring out how you're going to keep that fitness level and it's transitioned to more moving my heart and tracking my steps. But I will say that, that it's been difficult to itch that competitive scratch mm -hmm. that I have. Yes. It's very hard to replicate that feeling of either being in a game or going one-on-one -on -one or playing in a match. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot like that. Yes. Um, there's a topic that you did raise. I did um, transition to helping in coaching. So I have coached basketball 
for both my children. They're grown now, but I coached basketball and I had to check myself sometimes because of that competitive nature of athletic background, you know, because I started with really young kids and I applied a lot of the learnings that I had from my original coaches about fundamental foundations, um, competing, incorporating fitness levels into in the coaching kids and then trying to bring them together as a team. You know, that's mm-hmm. something that every sport, there's some aspect of that in the team sports. But I think I really enjoyed that. Me um, be close with my children and my wife. My wife helped with a lot of the teams too. But that was a way to some degree <laughs> have some level of competition. Mm. Um, I think in today's culture, though, there are some some parenting styles where they take that a little too far. They, you know, they're they're living their previous generations of competition through their kids. While I challenge my kids, I don't think I was the pushy type. I let them pick their sports and explore their things. Mm. And so that was a lifelong sports journey. It's, it's, it takes different turns. And that was one aspect of the journey that's uh, you know, still a work in progress. Yeah. What stands out to me is your ability to give them freedom. It seems like what you mentioned is the same that you had before. But I do think it's hard for so many parents to do. And... I am unsure about what I would do as far as self-awareness if I had mm-hmm. kids. So that is, in fact, one of the reasons that <laughs> I, I'm not sure for me having kids. Like if I had a kid who didn't want to play sports or for a reason wasn't athletic and didn't even want to try tennis, I'm not sure how I would be able to step away and give my kid the freedom to actually choose something else. <laughs> so I, I just want to commend you on that because I think that's yeah. really hard to do. But it seems like your kids at least tried basketball and played basketball naturally, had an interest in it. They tried several sports. Uh, my daughter uh, ended up being a competitive volleyball player. Yeah. My son, though, has transitioned through all that. So he tried a lot of stuff. And he did not enjoy team sports and athletics. So he has his own journey of fitness and staying fit, mm. but he's not a sports person. And that's one thing that I have to support him on. And it took me a while to learn that in terms of every individual is different and trying to push what is important to you or stress or put boundaries on stuff. That's something that I had to check myself on because he did not enjoy the same things that I did. And we found other things that we did together. So sports is not something that we share, <laughs> yeah. but there are lots of other things that I really enjoy about how he's found himself. Um, and same with my daughter, although it's funny, my daughter and I do share the love of sports of like the Warriors and the A's. We like to watch sports, but then that's a a different aspect of parenting, finding those areas that you have in common that you can share Mm -hmm. and then making sure that you're not trying to push too much. You're supporting, you're not pushing. Yeah. I do think that was really hard to realize. Do you have any tricks 
done, like parents, people who may be listening, because I think that line is not black and white. It's sort of a gray, right? How much you push versus how much you give freedom. And just from experience, don't have kids, but I have very little sister. And to this date, (laughs) I sometimes regret, we feel like how much we've tried pushing her into tennis, because I always felt like, oh, I'm the one who picked it up. We sort of felt like we learned what tennis is on me. And now all of this learning, so we can figure out and we know the system we can apply to her. So she just starts early and we try to influence her. And I would say the influence was actually positive and negative. We tried to like pay her in chocolates. That was her favorite treat before. <laughs> and she would just not want it. Or my mom tried the pushing like really hard and yeah. that didn't work either. So tennis was just not her sport. She continued doing it just for fun, which is great. But I would say we probably pushed too hard for her because yeah. the balance may be really difficult. So how did you realize that was their message and how did you find a way to reframe it? Well, I think similarly to my journey as a kid, my parents offered choice. They didn't push. So I had that as a background. So I didn't have the pushy parents background that I've seen, you know, I have nieces and nephews. Uh, my nephew was a very competitive baseball player and went through the whole club experience. And then my experience with my daughter in club volleyball, where there is so much parent intervention and it's politics is in a lot of these club sports. Mm-hmm. And my wife and I were believers in offering choice because that offers the ability to meet new people and to find the things that they like. Sometimes we tried too much. We tried taking them somewhere that was different or what have you. We maybe maybe letting them find that and choose would have been a path. But I think in today's society, youth sports is definitely a different game from when, when I grew up. Mm-hmm. But making sure that you're giving opportunity, but that you're not pushing a preference and pressurizing the situation. I've seen horrible examples of parents not treating their own children with respect because of either something they did wrong or, or what have you. It's, you know, there's a balance between, and I guess the word coach is a good word for it, providing feedback Um, I did have coaches that were very verbal and aggressive and, Mm. (laughs) but I wasn't the type of kid that responded to that type of input. So more of an intellectual approach, explain it to me was better for me. Mm. So I, um, I've raised my voice as a coach, but I've tried to remember not to use that as a pushy thing. And that's also transitioned in me as a parent, I think too. Yeah, it just stands out to me. It's all a cycle and it seems like the skills you have accumulated in basketball and being on a team as a team player, then coaching and probably even the transition from your basketball to then playing basketball, teaching others about the passion in other companies as you went on Mm -hmm. your professional journey. It seems like all kind of coming together and helping you become just a better person as a father. And I would say even professional learning how or observing how you and I have worked together. I do have to say you do very well in like this orchestration 
and bring the team together and aligning with different people. And it's like you're orchestrating well. I think just basketball being so much of game of trust, you have assigned positions and you have different teammates where you have almost designated, it's not one task, but it's like, this is the principle of the game and we all got to play well and orchestrate well in order to get to a desired goal, which is hopefully to win at the end. True. What all comes into that? Because I'm, it's very different than tennis, which is you have that in doubles to some degree, but again, tennis is game of one or a game of yeah, two. Yeah, that's true. Like, that's true. about it. You don't have a whole team running around in an orchestrated way. Yeah, I think there's a good parallel there in terms of project teams and athletic teams in that to be successful in a project, you need varying skills and how those skills fit together and support one another. I think that's also something that, you know, if you look at all the studies about successful teams within big companies, there are attributes of that that look like a competitive athletic team Mm. in that everybody needs to know their role. Everybody brings something to the table. They have a job to do. But if everybody doesn't do their job, you're not going to have a high-performing team. And so pulling those pieces together and how they interlock and how they're planned. You know, one thing that I've learned from a lot of my coaches in athletics was the ones that were very explicit but simple in their project plans. Mm. This is what we're going to do today in practice, keeping it to three or four bullets. These are the outcomes we're searching for. And then sticking to that and really, you know, gating from a time window perspective, that's also a skill. Like we're going to spend 45 minutes on this particular play. And our goal is to have it ingrained by the end of that time. I'll always remember some of those sessions in practice. Mm -hmm. Practice with a purpose is something that is prevalent, not only in the athletic world, but now in the work world. Mm -hmm. Work with a purpose. So yeah, there's a lot of parallels to that world. And uh, it's something that I've always thought about when I've worked in different environments. Um, Being a team-oriented person. And also, I think my experience of being a cog in a bigger team rather than a star, I wouldn't say I was a support person, but I was never the the quarterback or the leading scorer. I was somebody who was part of the foundation. But I thought that I was able to lead, by example, and play my role. Mm. You know, that's something that's carried over, you know, my whole athletic and work career. I love it. I agree. All the things that you said simplify because it's so easy to make things complicated and to some degree things are complicated. But if we make it more complex, it doesn't mean that it's great. How do you simplify them so everybody can get a line and a board? Yeah. Purpose, I agree. It's a word that's growing everywhere. You know, like nutrition, eating with purpose, knowing yep. what you eat, yep. that your body needs for fuel. And definitely, I'm not even going to talk about working out and training with purpose and working with purpose, understanding what matters and how to drive a difference. Um, and just being the foundation, I think to me that really stands out is it's almost getting the dirty work done. Someone yeah. needs to get the <laughs> stuff done and finished yeah. and leading by example 
Because to me, this goes a lot. What do we talk about with my partner consistency? Mm-hmm. Like people often talk a lot, but then you, based on the actions, you can see, well, is this just a talk yeah. or are they actually consistent? Yeah. Are they doing what they're saying? Because as humans, we're so much easier to judge others than sometimes to judge ourselves. Like it's so much easier to observe somebody else. Oh, you're doing this and that. I think we don't often catch ourselves and check in with ourselves. Well, am I actually doing the right thing that I'm saying I should be doing? Yeah. Am I doing what I'm preaching in a sense or am I inconsistent? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you did mention earlier as well, balance, Mm -hmm. handling multiple priorities and being schedule focused. And also the competitiveness. How do you do thinks well with a great outcome. And I think the competitiveness is sometimes judged too harsh. It depends on the culture. Sometimes it's lifted up. But I think there is a certain level of competitiveness needed in order for people to put in the effort oh, yeah. yep. and really try hard. Yep. Like I think the competitive aspect can be out of proportion. Like you don't want to be on the red line scale. But if I want to do something well, I think there is an important aspect of competitiveness to grow and learn and actually put in an effort. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's um, Harry Audacious goals with a time frame for completing them, but that you can actually believe you can complete them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then giving space to form the plan to get to that end destination. And then holding each other accountable in that journey mm-hmm. and celebrating the milestones, celebrating the many successes. Mm. That's also relatable to teams with, you know, after every practice, you're going to gather together and hurrah or whatever you're going to say. There's aspects of that in the workplace too. Yes. The celebrating many successes personally is something that I, definitely had to learn and I think I'm still learning a lot but I think looking back and being very habit-oriented person in my view the win to some degree is out of your control like there's a lot of things that may happen whether the thing is ultimately a win or loss and sometimes it's very close Mm -hmm. what is very important as an athlete is to focus on the performance and how I did in that game, did we do all of the aspects we trained well? Because, you know, you can win and it might have been awful performance. Yeah, those are the ugly wins. <laughs> and you can win against somebody that just is unexpected yeah. and you did everything well. <laughs> so the daily habits is definitely something actually when I look back, I have taken much for granted back in the day. I've always put in the work, but I don't think I have celebrated the work that I'm putting in every day. If I was more grateful and I think appreciated the efforts, it would have been easier for me to navigate. Mm -hmm. It is something I'm learning now more, but I do agree. We actually, with my partner, we don't celebrate anything. Mm -hmm. We try to celebrate every day and the things in the daily basis more than, oh, we've been together for X amount of years. (laughs) Well, but it's really the every day that counts. Mm-hmm. I think we all should pick a random day yeah. that you can celebrate for just the reason that you choose and you are showing up and you're present and mindful. <laughs> yeah, I love the celebrating many successes. 
Yeah, and I think that does go towards that concept of mindfulness. And it's something that's being used a lot in the workplace. But I have grown with that. You know, we talked a little bit about this. My wife's family came from a Japanese Buddhist background, and I've been exposed and have adopted a number of those practices. You know, we're members at the Palo Alto Buddhist Temple. And um, I think that whole mindset has been a good thing also for work because it allows you to let stuff go or allows you to refocus on things. And that mini celebration concept, I think, is something that keeps me motivated in adversity, but also allows me to have pleasure in little things, too. I've read a couple books on this, and I think it's a really good practice for people to absorb the concept of mindfulness of being focused on the immediate rather than worrying about the big is an important one for the workplace, an important one for us as people. Mm-hmm. It helps you um, tackle every day. Yes, I agree. And I personally don't have a religion. If I had to have one, it would be Buddhism, just from everything I've learned and just the way they navigate around it. Mm-hmm. A fan of mindfulness, I do agree to some degree. It's thinking, oh, the self-care and the mindfulness is becoming such an overblown. It is a little bit much right now. <laughs> the, pandem- the, the pandemic yeah. has put a lot of that into our nomenclature. Some other things that come to that, though, is you've probably had some of that work training where there's sphere of influence, sphere of control. Mm. And there's definitely aspects of that in mindfulness about Mm. focusing on the things that you can control and not worrying about the things that are out of your control. Yes. But I will say the work environment now, as companies grow and the pressures mount, there is, you know, I know at at Google where I work, it's a very distributed resource model and you have to be mindful of of that Mm. because there's a lot more out of my control now to be successful than (laughs) in my past lives at work. So I think having that foundation helps deal with uh, different cultures like that. Yeah, I agree. I do think mindfulness is very important I'm curious about your opinion on really understanding and capturing what mindfulness is, because I've actually been doing meditation myself for about three, four years. And I, with that, I think I picked up a lot of the mindfulness word, or it may have been a group thing. I don't literally don't remember how it got to me anymore. But for a while, I had a hard time really capturing the understanding what mindfulness actually is. And just recently, I had an epiphany too. I was like, how do I simplify what mindfulness is? And the best feeling I could describe it, again, when I, when I bring it to tennis, I bring almost everything to tennis because I think that's how my brain learned to understand life, is when I'm on the court and I'm about to serve or return, there's this pause right before I serve or I return, there's this pause where I just stand there. I focus. I know things are in my control, but they're at the same time not. Like on serve, I can influence how the serve goes, but in ways, I just have to trust the body that it had learned emotion. There's nothing else I have to do because the more you think at that moment, the more mm-hmm. difficult and complicated things yeah. will get. So you just have to trust that your body already knows the motion and you sort of let it flow. So get in a space of 
presence, but it's also this freedom and emptiness. It's almost like floating. And I catch myself recently, I have like a half smile on my face. Like typically it's like really happy, empty space. But all I see is I have a perspective, but I'm really more seeing the ball and the game and not really focusing much on even the opponent. It's just a presence. I wonder if you have a similar story to how you tie to basketball or if that resonates or you have a better definition of mindfulness. Because for the longest time, I couldn't really grasp what it is. And this was the easiest thing that I found. I was like, oh, okay, just what it is. I just now got to figure out how to build it in my life in a longer period of times or in the times when I want it the most. Yeah, I think the there's two aspects of that that I I'll compare shooting a free throw to serving a tennis ball. Okay. Because it's the only instance where you're in complete control mm. and you have to block everything out mm. and you have one goal, one focus. You've practiced 10,000 in the last year and a half. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not a reaction situation. It's right. a action, repeated action situation. Mm-hmm. So you have to really get into that mindset. And then there's a visual aspect of it. There's a mental aspect of it. And then there's a physical execution aspect. So I think that's what people think about when they think of being mindful around a sports activity. The zone. You know, there's a, that Kevin Cosner movie when he was pitching a perfect game and he, he called it clear the mechanism mm. before every pitch. But then that word mindful means more to me because I think mindful has aspects of taking yourself out of yourself and putting yourself into the other people that are around you. Yeah. Being mindful of the fact that the day that you're having is not the same the day the person you may be working with is having. Mm -hmm. And so if you're mindful of the fact that your being is not potentially in the same state of somebody else and something happens, I think that helps you deal with those situations a little better. Mm -hmm. Um, It also helps me with appreciating my family a little more as I've learned a lot of this stuff, appreciating people for their differences, appreciating people from their, for their perspectives and taking a little bit of the ego out of, of that, you know, sports is, there's a lot of ego in sports, right? Mm-hmm. So I've had to unlearn some of that, you know, being mindful of others is not exactly a competitive point of view. <laughs> so that's a learning experience of how do you balance those two? Mm. Yeah, there's a lot to it. It's in the workspace. I think they're trying to get us to use mindfulness in the focus on the task at hand. And then the appreciation of other people's states. Yeah. That's how I see it in the workplace. Yeah. The attributes, because everyone's different. Um, and then you've seen a lot of the female versus male, different races in the workplace. That all mm. plays into that in terms of how an effective workplace works when everyone's different. Yes. You know, in in my 30 plus years of working, I think there's cultures where, you know, I am a white male, so I'm in the dominant one. But I think my, and I was going to relate this to you, my 
cultural experience and exposure to African-American basketball players and where they came from. Mm-hmm. I've had a natural ability, I think, to be more open with people. Mm. And that's extended into the workplace. Appreciate people's backgrounds and where they came from. And I think we could all get along better if everybody would be more open to that, you know, and kind of kumbaya stuff. But everyone should be exposed to another culture in a deep way Mm -hmm. so that they can learn to appreciate their own more, but also learn to embrace others more. Yeah, I love that. And I think that's a great description of mindfulness. And there's a lot of this even in sports now going when people start judging, oh, she's like this or she's Mm -hmm. like that. You can even... Give an example, Serena Williams and her oh, yeah. finals performance yep. at the U.S. Open uh, against Naomi Osaka a few years back, right? <laughs> she sort of yelled at the empire and felt like she was cheating. I don't know. It's hard, really. Some of the calls are really hard. The, the fact is, I think with Serena, we know a little bit where she comes from. And given her upbringing, yeah. I actually totally see how in her frame, whether this was right or wrong, but I totally see how that reality could happen. And based on what you go through in your upbringing, like it shapes your brain to think a specific way true. and see specific trends. Our brain is trained to make those associations yep. based on what has happened to us. So I do agree in the workplace being mindful of we don't know what the person has gone through. We don't know what happened to them. The concern, though, I have, even as a foreign person, what gets hard, especially when you start then getting the foreigners like me to America and learning the culture, is then when you combine with political correctness, because oh, yeah. then almost goes too somebody far. needs to yeah. teach you what are the right things to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very easy yeah. to get bundled up. What are the right so, things to say? Because you may be wanting to help and have a good intention, but I may choose the wrong word at the wrong time. And then that may be even worse than helping, right? That backfires in a big way. We're all here to work together and we're all here to appreciate each other. And just like winning basketball games, is not life. Yeah. And delivering projects at work is not life. (laughs) We're all people. Yes. And um, how we learn and appreciate how we're different will all make us a better humanity and have... um, more enjoyable experiences. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) One thing that stood out to me as we're talking is I actually don't know many people who were born in California and sort of grew up around Silicon Valley. That's true. So you actually were here and have seen the rise and the change of the culture like since the beginning. How is that for you? And how was the seeing the rise of you know the Google's apples, all of these conglomerates of the world and growing up around it while <laughs> all of this tech boom has been happening? Yeah, it's been amazing. Um, I was born in Iowa, but I came to California when I was six months old. So yeah, I do okay. view myself as a <laughs> 99.99% native Californian, native Bay Area. And there's been several waves. You know, when I started working, there was the database wave and the revolution of the way applications were built and the companies around that. Then I saw the explosion of the dot-com 
I worked and lived through that, benefited that financially from some of the companies I worked at. That's exploded in cultural, social media, all the stuff that's evolved. It's been right here. And there's been waves, waves of success and waves of duress. And just to see the amount of change has been amazing. You know, when I first started commuting from Livermore over the hill, it was a two-lane podunk freeway. And now Livermore is considered part, you know, I didn't even think of it as part of the Bay Area, really. It was out across this mountain range on the other side. Mm. And now people live on the other side of the next mountain range out there, and they're considered part of the Bay Area, you know? So it's just been interesting to, to see all the different areas grow, get specialized in different ways. You know, the Bay Area is a unique place. I think the appreciation of different cultures is one reason why you want to live in the Bay Area people from all over the world. Mm -hmm. That's one aspect of my job that I've also gotten exposure to travel globally all over the place. But then a lot of those people have come here and we're all a melting pot like yourself. Yeah. You get to meet people from all over the world. It's been a great place. And I do recognize though, that it's going to be tough for the next generation of kids. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at Barry housing, some of the really big building blocks I think the next 10 years will be telling in terms of, you know, I worry about what will my children be able to come back and settle yes. in the neighborhoods where we have, mm. um, you know, what it's like to rent an incredibly yeah. expensive place. <laughs> I was lucky enough to buy a house, you know, over 20 years ago. I don't know how anybody does it right now. The barrier is it's filtering yeah. in a way it's filtering the people that can live here successfully. Right. And it's putting a lot of pressure on the lower economic rungs and social economic rungs of our culture here in the Barry. And I worry for that, you know, so we'll, yeah. um, looking out for others is something we all have to do and appreciate everybody as we're all, we're all evolving, you know? Yeah, I agree. I think the have prices here are definitely <laughs> just a challenge. The real estate market here can be almost like a roulette. Like you, you never know. And yeah. so much money goes into just <laughs> buying a box to live in. Yeah. And that is not even pretty. Like mm -hmm. 1 million is just a fixer upper here <laughs> in some of the areas here, right? So yep. it's ridiculous. Excellent. Don, I uh, want to thank you so much. Is there anything else as you look towards 2021 and everything we have gone through? this pandemic and we have learned any message you want to get out to the world or anything else you want to highlight? Um, you know, this has been a really telling year and um, I think it's going to be important for us the next six months to a year to pick the positives from the last 16 months. There's been a lot of change mm -hmm. and then maybe we can adopt the best of both periods, you know, in terms of, us as people and us as the way we work. I know the pandemic has made me appreciate my coworkers and their situations even further. When we get back in person, I suspect I won't be doing as much travel, mm. which I think is a very, for me, being my size travel is a real pain in the butt. I barely fit into <laughs> um, the just plane the airplane, seats, not even yeah, airplane rides themselves. Yeah. But I think it's been a down period. But I think we're resilient and um, we have to learn from it and we have to support people that have struggled through it. 
there's people that have lost through it. You know, I lost my mom through this period. It's been really tough. But I think looking, you know, now that we're nearing the other side, continuing to carry forward that appreciation for our neighbors, appreciation for our coworkers and our friends. And really, I've learned to appreciate my family a lot. We've been on top of each other a lot more. We've had to learn a lot how to function like that. And carrying that forward, I think, will make it all worthwhile. If you can't pull the positives from something, then, you know, don't let it all be negative. Let's learn from it and uh, come together and, and keep moving. Yes, I love that. I don't have any better words. Just looking at the positive, what we can take on and, and appreciate. Yeah. Going back to your mindfulness practice, being mindful of others. And you bet. I think spreading <laughs> that around. I agree. Yeah. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Clara. It's been a journey and um, great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time and enjoy the weekend. Yeah, you too. Have a great weekend.